Peter Curtin, the burglar, the arsonist, the rapist, the murderer, the suspected vampire. I'm Hannah McKinney. And I'm Solomia Makovich. In this podcast, we will talk about the sadistic, sociopathic serial killer. Warning. There are sensitive topics and graphic content discussed in this podcast, such as rape and murder. Peter Curtin had been committing murderous crimes ever since he was a child. A natural-born killer, some would say. What may have motivated him to go down this dark path? Let's go back to where it all began. He was born on the 26th of May in 1883 to an impoverished and abusive household in Cologne, Germany. Peter shared a one-bedroom apartment with his parents and 12 younger siblings. Peter's father was an alcoholic and often attacked and assaulted his children. Peter, being the eldest, often received the brunt of the abuse. His father would rape Peter's mother in front of the children and force his daughters to perform sexual acts with him. Growing up in such an environment had a negative impact on him and could have been a factor in why he committed his crimes. At just nine years old, Peter claimed to have killed two children by drowning them. When he and two schoolmates went rafting, He pushed one child into the water, and the other jumped in to save him, but Peter held his head under. Around the same age, Peter met a dog catcher who introduced him to bestiality. At first, his sexual perversions began with dogs. Eventually, he moved on to other animals, such as sheep and goats. No longer satisfied with just raping animals, Peter started stabbing the animals during intercourse. Most likely because of his childhood, sex became warped and distorted, and couldn't be untangled from violence. At the age of 14, he became an apprentice molder. Near the end of his apprenticeship, Peter stole all the money he could find from his house and 300 German gold marks from his job. He then ran away to Koblenz, where police found him and sent him to prison for one month. After being released, he continued his spree of petty theft. Peter committed a more serious murder in 1899 which he convinced an 18-year-old girl to have sex with him and proceeded to choke her to death. Then the next year, he committed fraud and attempted murder with a gun. He was jailed for four years. Upon his release, he was drafted to the German army and sent to Metz, France. Peter left early and started a spree of arsons. He watched from afar with satisfaction as the emergency officials put out the fires he started. Police eventually figured out it was him who caused the fires and he was put into prison for five years. Most of his time was spent in solitary confinement. Peter's first publicly known murder took place on May 25th of 1913. He broke into a house to steal, but found nine-year-old Christine Klein sleeping. He started to choke her, startling her awake. He continued to strangle her until she passed out again, finally slitting her throat twice. He later recounted the murder in a note during his trial. A part of it read, I held the child's head and cut her throat. I heard the blood spurt and drip on the map beside the bed. It spurted in an arc right over my head. The whole thing lasted about three minutes. In the wording of the note, it seems as if there is a sense of fulfillment and no remorse for the event. The day after the incident, Peter went out around the town listening with content to people rant about how disgusted and shocked they were because of what happened to the little girl. He often visited Christine's grave to relive the murder. Peter did the same thing to a 17-year-old girl named Gertrude Franken in the city of Lachakees. On July 14th of the same year, Peter was arrested yet again for arson and burglary. 
His time was spent in military prison in Brieg. After being released, he moved in with his sister. There, he met August Scharf, who was to become his wife. Living with August wasn't enough for his desires, so he started to have affairs with other women. August figured out about these affairs and kicked Peter out. Soon after, the woman he was having affairs with, his servant Teed, and his housemaid Mech reported him for rape. After spending eight more months in prison for his crimes, from February to November in 1929, Peter went on a killing spree, stabbing and choking. In these months, Peter managed to kill an elderly woman, who he stabbed 24 times, a nine-year-old girl, whom he stabbed in the stomach, temple, genitals, and heart, and a middle-aged man, who he stabbed in the head and spine 20 times. Between March and July, he attempted to strangle four women, each of whom escaped. On August 11th, Peter was successful. He lured Maria Hahn into a meadow, where he raped, strangled, and stabbed her. After killing her, he buried her in a cornfield. Peter's plan was to go back and nail her to a tree. He couldn't carry her parts, so he returned her to the grave. Three months later, he sent an anonymous letter to the police station confessing to Maria's murder and giving the location of her body. On November 15th, police found the remains. Before sending the letter, Peter kept switching his weapons to throw the police off. He switched back and forth between scissors, knives, and hammers. Using this tactic, he killed an 18-year-old girl, 30-year-old man, and a 37-year-old woman, all in separate attacks. On a fairground, Peter encountered two foster sisters who he lured into an alleyway, strangling and slitting one's throat, then strangling and stabbing the other one in the torso. After killing the second sister, he cut her throat and bit into it, sucking the blood. This is what led him to be called the Vampire of Dusseldorf. Following this event, Peter used a hammer as his weapon until it broke during an attempted murder. The two women he tried to kill escaped, and he switched back to using scissors. After some time, he lured five-year-old Gertrude into an alleyway. There, he strangled her and stabbed her left temple. After she died, Peter continued to stab her an additional 34 times. He hid the body in nettles. After this murder, Peter became internationally known. Because of his use of different weapons and various types of victims, police suspected more than one person was committing the crimes. He sent a map showing where Maria Hahn's grave and Gertrude's body were located. The police noticed the handwriting on the map was the same as the writing on the anonymous note and figured out that there was only one suspect committing the crimes. Gertrude Alberman was the last successful murder. Peter kept attacking people, but was never able to kill them. In 1930, between February and May, people who had escaped Peter went to the police and described him. After a while, the police got an accurate picture of what he looked like. In May, Maria Budlick was arguing with a man on the street. Peter saw them and scared the man away. Peter then offered to grab a drink with her at his place, and she agreed. Then, he asked her to sleep with him, but she refused. After the rejection, Peter asked her if she wanted him to take her back to her hostel. She accepted, but instead of taking her to the hostel, he brought her to Grafenberg Woods, where he choked her and raped her. Maria broke free when Peter loosened his grip. When she escaped... She didn't report the incident to the police. Instead, she wrote a letter to a friend about it. She messed up the address on the envelope, causing the postman to open the letter. Later on, the postman reported it to the police. When the police received the evidence, they went to Peter's house. He wasn't home at the time. He eventually showed up and saw the police and fled to his wife's house. There, he confessed to the murders and told her who he really was. There was a reward for whoever could find him, so he told his wife to turn him in and collect the money. When she turned him in, Peter was arrested at gunpoint outside St. Rockus Church. 
While being questioned, Peter blamed his horrible deeds on his abusive childhood and claimed blood gave him satisfaction. On April 13th of 1931, Peter's trial was held in Dusseldorf. He was being tried for nine counts of murder and seven attempts. He pled not guilty due to insanity. Multiple psychologists tested him and concluded he was fully capable of controlling himself. The trial lasted 10 days. He was found guilty. Before his head was placed on the guillotine, Peter turned to a psychiatrist and asked, Tell me, after my head has been chopped off, will I still be able to hear, at least for a moment, the sound of my own blood gushing from the stump of my neck? That would be the pleasure to end all pleasures. When asked if he had any other last words to say, Peter simply smiled and replied, No. Following Peter's execution, his head was dissected and mummified. His brain was removed and examined to help understand his mentality. Peter's head is currently on display at the Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum in Wisconsin. We talked to one of the workers at the museum where Peter Curtin's head is displayed. Here's what they had to say about it. Can you tell us your name, please? Nora Becker. Thank you for speaking with us today, Nora. Of course. Okay, so our first question is, when the scientists studied Peter's brain, were there any abnormalities that you know of? No, scientists have concluded that his brain showed no differences from any normal person. It was likely that the things he did were just due to his parents' influences. Okay, our next question is, how did the museum get Peter's head? After Peter was executed, parts of his body were sold, and a man named Arne Coward brought his head. Once he died, his collections were auctioned off, and that's when Ripley's acquired it. Do you know um, how many crimes Peter committed? I believe he admitted to around 70, including 10 murders. Do you think he may have committed any more? Maybe, but I don't think so, because if he did more, then why not admit to it? He was already being sentenced to death. Okay, that's all we have. Thank you for your time. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed.